0: And to help us in our journey this evening, we are very honoured to be joined by Patricia Greer, a tutor from St. John's College for the last 18 years. Patricia, welcome. Thank you. So I'm always stunned by the diverse knowledge of St. John's tutors and students and particularly the diverse reading list um, that you have at St. John's. And a while ago, a number of weeks ago, we had your fellow tutor, Ned Wolpen, here discussing Plato's Republic. And this evening, I'm assuming based on your Ph.D. in South Asian religions and Sanskrit, uh, you wanted to discuss an ancient Sanskrit, uh, Sanskrit epic called the Mahabharata. Um, is that a good pronunciation? Yes, I got that's that. perfect. Um, so my knowledge of ancient Sanskrit epics is very small. <laughs> so um, let's start with what is this text? What is this epic? Well, It was probably begun about
1: 400 B.C., and and the final form we have around the the turn of the Common Era, it's the biggest probably work in the world, Mm -hmm. Um, certainly the longest poem. It's got about a million couplets, lots more of things in prose, Mm -hmm. Um, ten times the Iliad and the Odyssey combined
0: is the estimate. It's an extra- I mean that's an extraordinary text. Yeah. That you're saying took 400 years or so to write? That's an estimate because of course there no document nothing right. about that's documented but about that. And and what is the purpose of the epic? What what is it about? I mean obviously a text so huge I'm not expecting you to to say the whole thing but but what's it for? Well, there's a central story if you will
1: in the Mahabharata which centers around a family of cousins. They're royal. They have a huge falling out. And there's going to be a gigantic war, which is going to ravage pretty much the whole warrior class in the known world of India. India, And people will be killing their relatives, Mm. their teachers. So... This is the central story, you could say. But woven into that, this are multiple, multiple st- uh, semi-stories um, of mythology, long metaphysical passages, long philosophical passages. Um, the whole – everything is in The Mahabharata says of itself, everything that exists is in here.
0: Right.
1: If it's not in here, it doesn't exist.
0: Is that your experience of it? Yes. So, yes. So, so in what way? I mean, obviously, the world has changed enormously in 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. It, are you saying that the concepts or the approaches of humanity or, or the, the larger thought patterns are there? Or, or is it more than that?
1: I think, well, all of those things are, are included mm. and probably more. But all the big questions, I think, like, who am I? What is the universe? What is the meaning of life? As you said in your introduction, mm. is there life after death? Um, is there a god or multiple gods? And time is one of the um, the large themes of the Mahabharata that I thought we might talk about a little bit today. Sure, definitely.
0: It sounds like you're... When you started introducing it and explaining about, you know, individuals going to war, it sounded like a war epic. Uh-huh. But now it sounds very strongly a theological document um, or a metaphysical document, perhaps. It's definitely metaphysical. But the the problem of
1: war um, is, is also extremely central. War and violence. And is there anything like a just war? Mm. Um, what What does it mean for a warrior? Um, to do his duty, as it would say, and fight and even have to kill people that are related to him, uh, people he loves. All of these questions are extremely central. But it tells a story of everything from the creation of the universe till
0: time freezes at the end. So time freezing at the end sounds fascinating. We definitely must get to that. So does this come from a particular religious perspective um why why should i read this today let's say um what what can i get from this text that i haven't had before
1: it's like asking me what can you get from the bible or what can you get from shakespeare something like that um you can get Almost anything from it, and it's extremely profound. And I would say it—it's not dated anything more than, say, the Bible or the Quran or any of these great treasures of, of human um, invention and creation.
0: Right. So, the, I mean, this is profoundly exploring the human condition. Oh, oh, in...
1: yes, the human, the the divine, everything.
0: So, are there? So, I mean, you mentioned time. Are there are there differences in the way? that the authors of this text view the world in the way that we view the world um, in our larger society. And obviously when I say we, you know, we, are, we live in a very pluralistic, different society, but we have certain social, even theological, metaphysical assumptions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, does, does the Mahabharata view the world in a different way to our current society? I think it does. And, and um – Time is it
1: is very much it's central um, to that view. It it recognizes that we humans are locked into what one might call linear time, mm. Newtonian time. Mm. We're, we're locked into that, but a larger, say Einsteinian, would be the closest I guess in in our culture I could get to, where time and space collapse upon themselves. Right. Is a, is. The thing that I would say surrounds everything, time is seen almost as a being, as a great force um, of creation uh, that, that we're both caught in um, but have, have a possibility of getting out of or stepping back from and seeing how it works. Let, let me read you just one little um, verse from the Mahabharata um, about time because it's just one of my favorite ones. Um, Time ripens the creatures, time rots them. And time again puts out the time that burns down the creatures. Time unfolds all beings in the world, holy and unholy. Time shrinks them and expands them again. Time walks in all creatures, unaverted, impartial. Whatever beings there were in the past will be in the future. Whatever are busy now, they are all the creatures of time. Know it, and do not lose your sense
0: what, uh, so much here <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of the one of those um, clauses you said, uh, and I think it needs repeating, just for me to be sure, was about what was before and what will be.
1: Yes, yes. Um, whatever beings there were in the past will be in the future. And whatever are busy now, they are all the creatures of time.
0: See, for me, that immediately resonates as a rabbi of the book of Ecclesiastes uh-huh. that says there is nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. And anything that has existed, anything that exists now has already existed before exactly. and will exist again. Yes. Um, where's that coming from? Because I, I struggle with that. I'm, I'm pretty certain nobody like me has ever existed in the world. And, and lucky them. Um so there are new things, aren't there? I think this
1: gets uh, your your question um, touches upon this very central concept of the Mahabharata and of the tradition, which is what we call karma, uh, a word that um, is much banding about, mm. and uh, there's not a lot of deep understanding of what it means. But it, but essentially, your soul or yourself, there are many words for that in Sanskrit. Is, is born and dies and is reborn um, in a cycle of existences that either devolve or evolve. Um, and there is an, an indication that at some point, if the self wills it, there can be an, an enlightenment which then pulls you out of the whole thing. But not necessarily. You may choose to stay in it
0: one of the uh, uh, one of the questions that i have of this uh, philosophy of karma which i don't understand is there are we are moral beings and we mm-hmm. make choices yeah. but there are species in the world that i would consider don't make moral choices they they do things according to their animal nature mm-hmm. i don't understand how they can escape that prison or that that um, cycle of um, I can't understand how an animal, how my dog, can head towards enlightenment, because I put food down and it says great food and, and eats and and then you know gets rid of the food and then sleeps and goes for a walk and and so on. It it doesn't seem to be making a choice that helps it escape from this process of time.
1: Yeah. um, I think in the Mahabharata, um, this question is handled in in many different ways. Um, Theoretically, a human soul who lives, a human who lives an animal kind of life, might be reborn as an animal. And that animal itself would have to grow and evolve and maybe at some point take a human birth. So these are where the choices we make really do matter. Um, i don 't think the text claims that your dog is
0: necessarily a reborn <laughs> I mean, person He's, that he's would a good be. dog he 's a <laughs> good dog well, then his next life is
1: going to be great
0: <laughs> so you mentioned earlier you mentioned about time freezing mm-hmm. What does that mean because that's that 's not something i 've heard before at the
1: well the frame the, the mabar has various frames, but it was supposed to have been told by this great wise man at a 12-year sacrifice in which, called by a king, who wants to kill all the serpents in the world. So they, they kind of have a spell or something and a great fire in which all these snakes start being devoured by the fire. This lasts for 12 years. Okay. The big king of the snakes, I won't go into the whole story, is about to fall and a powerful being comes into this, into this sacrifice and is able to say, stop. Now, these are the very last passages of this huge epic. Mm-hmm. This snake is literally frozen in time. And I always think of what uh, physicists tell us about... Um, black holes, that mm-hmm. if we were outside a black hole and saw somebody falling into it, they would seem to freeze and never right. – it's something like that, I think. The Mahabharata ends as if it's a great black hole and time simply seems to to freeze and that's it. That's it.
0: I'm intrigued uh, with the with the symbolism of the serpent because, again, coming from my Jewish perspective, the – the symbolism of the serpent in the Torah is a very negative one, yeah, yeah. Um, one who tempts and tries mm-hmm. to lure away from God's word, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, um, and different communities have very different understandings of that, but it's still a very negative sense. But what you're saying here, what I hear is, is almost the opposite. You know, thank goodness we saved the last snakes almost. You know, it was held in time. I'm very intrigued by the different perspective here.
1: Oh, and snakes in the Mahabharata. I've written about that. I've studied this forever. They they are great beings, and many of them are just snakes, and they bite you and they do bad things. But many of them are actually great beings who can take on all kinds of forms. Some of the heroes in the story actually marry snake women who are beautiful women but they are their essence or something is a snake. So they're not they're not evil, they're part of the whole of the whole scheme. But they, they mutate
0: that's fascinating because naturally my mind thinks of ancient epics like Medusa who mm-hmm. again you know she is she's evil in, in right. her own way and and the snakes are the warning to being frozen right. which again i guess comes touches on a different aspect of freezing serpents. Yeah yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Let's take a, a break. And, and when we come back, let's, let's talk more about this concept of, of time, because it, it's so interesting, so extraordinary. So you're listening to Rabbi Neil Amswich. Uh, with the, our show is Soul Searching. Uh, my guest this evening is Patricia Greer from St. John's College. And we're going to be back after this break. Welcome back to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Uh, my guest this evening, Patricia Greer, a tutor from St. John's College, um, and we've been discussing the Mahabharata and this concept of time being frozen. It does make me think uh, I come from an astrophysics background, and there's a, a question about. Uh, where's the universe going? Is the universe going to continually expand as it seems to be doing? It actually seems to be accelerating, Mm -hmm. which is very confusing for a lot of people. Is it going to reach a steady state or um, is it going to collapse in on itself? And one of the staggering consequences of the universe accelerating is is heat death, is eventually everything separates and we're left with nothing. Mm -hmm. We're left with... What is a really depressing end of time, which is everything just slowly evaporates to entropy and, and nothing remains. Is that similar or am I projecting on? Well, it's
1: similar in that that is included. But this is, a, this is I would say, an endless cycle. that the cy- Because time on its more profound level moves circularly or spherically. So there's a cycle of ages that lasts a certain number of thousands of years. But after these cycles are over, there's going to be a huge destruction, um, probably ultimately by fire. Everything, I think you should say, just there's entropy and everything seems to be gone. But the idea is that at that moment, the supreme consciousness um, simply turns in upon itself But then it's going to, again, from itself or within itself, uh, create another
0: universe. And this goes on forever. Why destruction, though? Why not? uh, I mean, I can't ask you to explain why the text does this because you didn't write it. But... There are a lot of faith traditions that have, um, I guess, the opposite. At the end of time, however we understand it, there is a unification. There is Mm -hmm. salvation almost. Mm -hmm. Um, It's quite startling for me to hear the opposite almost, that 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 which was will just be destroyed to nothingness. Mm -hmm. And so... I mean, what does that mean for human action? Does it, doesn't that mean it's meaningless? If everything that we do is eventually destroyed, what's the point? Why can't I engage in any kind of nihilistic pleasure and do whatever I like? Because ultimately, whether or not I'm involved in a cycle of my of my soul going up or down, at the end of everything, it's all going to be destroyed and then the universe starts again. So why should I be a good person even? <laughs> Okay,
1: let me, let me answer this maybe slightly indirectly. Sure. Um, a text that everybody, or everybody, many people know in the West is the Bhagavad Gita. Mm-hmm. The Bhagavad Gita is one tiny sliver embedded in the Mahabharata. It's not a separate text. It's kind of not—it it, it misconstrues it to pull it out. Mm-hmm. But in the text, Lord Krishna, who is a divine incarnation— um, is the charioteer of the main hero of the book who says he's looking at his cousins and family across the battlefield, throws down his bow and says, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And Krishna says, yes, you can, and uh, convinces him to do so. But there's, there's one extremely powerful um, passage here, um, and I'll read you just a couple of little verses. Please, please. So at, the, at at a point, this warrior... Turns to Krishna, who's his best friend, and says, Tell me who you really are. Uh-huh. And the text says, If the light of a thousand suns were to rise in the sky at once, it would be like the light of that great spirit. May sound familiar because Oppenheimer said these were right. the lines that he thought of. Right. Um, so It goes on, and then this warrior says, Seeing the many mouths and eyes of your great form, its many arms, thighs, feet, bellies, and fangs, the world tremble, and so do I. Seeing the fangs protruding from your mouths like the fires of time, I lose my bearings and find no refuge. Tell me who you really are. Mm -hmm. And Krishna, this great god says, incarnate god, I am time grown old, creating world destruction, set in motion to annihilate the worlds, plural. Even without you, all these warriors arrayed in hostile ranks will cease to exist. Therefore arise and win glory, conquer your foes and fulfill kingship. They're already slain by me. Just be my instrument, the archer at my side. See,
0: that for me supports my question, which is I could go out and murder someone and say they're going to die anyway. According to time, they're already dead.
1: Yeah, but that's not, no, you can't do that because this is not what you're meant to do. Ah, this, this particular warrior, this is what he is meant to do. This is his path. This is his duty in life. And, the, and this concept of duty or dharma, is, as it's called in Sanskrit, is extremely uh, central. Right. We each have to know what that is and have to explore that and wonder about it and examine, examine it all through our lives. Is Who am I and what does that mean in terms of my action? How do we find that out? Um I think well there there are many solutions I would say from a, a profound soul searching um but also from one's contact with divinity or the divine or something like that because Krishna offers many different paths and he finally says at the end you know bottom line be devoted to me love me and your questions will be answered.
0: So, I mean, that, that also brings up for me, um, the passage from book of Deuteronomy, um, you should love the eternal, your God with all your heart and all your soul. How, and all your strength or Mm mind. How, you know, does the Mahabharata approach the idea of how can one love divinity? I, I mean, it's hard enough for us to love human beings, uh, and I'm not necessarily exposing a cynical side of myself, but but to love is to give of yourself and to, and to engage in a relationship. Um, with any kind of divine being, that's very different because are you actually hearing anything back? And if you are, is that authentic or is that your projection? Mm-hmm. So so does this text address that idea of, of love of divinity? If Krishna is saying here, love me, how does one do that?
1: Yeah, because he, he doesn't sound so lovable in this passage, right, with yes. fangs. And yeah. and then he says, I am time, which is pretty scary. But one mustn't forget that he is incarnate divinity. And in his human manifestation, he, he's he's royal. He's the warrior's best and most intimate friend. He's beautiful. He's fun. He has many wives. He's, he's funny. I mean, he's an absolutely wonderful and profound being. And I think if one can approach him in that way, one can love him. But not everybody approaches divinity in that way. It's a possibility. But that may not be your path. Your path may be
0: uh, to go on a path of knowledge, of of study. Right. Um, So so let me ask, I I know we've only got a, a few minutes left, You mentioned uh, much earlier in our show about the difference between Newtonian and Einsteinian perspectives Mm -hmm. of time um, and how this is similar to the Einsteinian perspective of time. I can't help but notice Einstein's understanding of time has been around for decades Mm -hmm. and society still hasn't caught up with it. We seem to be resistant to it. We seem to need time in a linear way. Yeah. so I guess maybe the question is what what can hold us back? What is it that's holding us back from learning a different concept of time? What is it maybe and again you can't speak for everyone in the world, but but why do you think this this perspective of time in the Mahabharata is so interesting compared to our perspective of time today?
1: Yeah. Well, as I said before, I think human beings generally are caught in Newtonian time. That's how we live. There's past, present, and future. But on a much more profound level, time is something else. To to ever be able to grasp that, I think, would be in,
0: equivalent to what the Mahabharata would call enlightenment. Enlightenment, right. But are we are we caught in Newtonian time or do we choose to be? Because well, that, I yeah. wonder if our society has framed itself and perhaps based on earlier religious traditions, including, you know, a, a biblical tradition of there was a start to the universe in the beginning of God's creating the heavens and the earth. So there's a beginning, and then later on in the prophets, there's an end. Mm-hmm. So, so everyone frame your perspective of the world around this. Um, I'm wondering. When we say that our society is, or people are caught in Newtonian time, is that just Westerners? Is that a, a very Western perspective of time?
1: I, no, I don't think so. I think the characters in the Mahabharata are living in that kind of time. the The thing with the text is, is that it shows you in the way it reveals itself. Time, time stretches; it collapses. People remember the future. Um, there, time is an extremely mm, plastic and and living thing. Time is almost, like Krishna says, "I am time." Mm. Um, so, I, I think in the West, probably we simply accept this linear time. That's how we live. Perhaps pondering over, really seriously pondering over. What time might really be and could it be different? Could it be mm. closer to a collapsing of time and space? N- and not ask that question in an intellectual way but truly try to interiorize it and ponder it and, re- and meditate on it or something. That, mm. that that might show us another way. But I don't think it's reached by intellectual um, pursuits. Right.
0: and And of course – Um, You know, Einsteinian relativity theory is incredibly complicated, you know, mathematically and so on. And and most of us can't get there. Of course. I've got to say very quickly. And when I say when I say we're out almost out of time, um, (laughs) I I do wonder what that means. Um, I hear when you said people remembering the future. It just immediately conjured for me the idea of biblical prophets. Ah yes. And I and I wonder for me that's a really interesting perspective to explore yeah. of are they experiencing time differently as opposed to just saying, here is the word of God, have it, this is what's going to happen. I wonder if there's a merging here. I think there might be. That's extremely
1: interesting. It would be it would be wonderful to be able to explore this more. Um, but that it seems to me that these prophets have approached that level of enlightenment where there is a kind of. Almost mastery of time because the understanding of it is so profound.
0: Well, then let's definitely have you back on the show another time or maybe the same time, but with different (laughs) conversation. Um, This has been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rabbi Neil. It's been a pleasure. So you've been listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. And uh, my guest for this evening, uh, where we've had a fascinating conversation, uh, Patricia Greer, tut- tutor from St. John's College. And I do genuinely hope you come back again soon. Thank you. Until we return again in two weeks time, keep searching.